Yeah, we, we definitely live in a, word, a world of chaos, don't we? Uh, a world where uh, things just seem a bit out of order uh, right now, where no one seems to really be in charge. I, I saw uh, uh, a store that had a sign up promoting its Christmas special and reminding folks how close Christmas is. And the sign out front said, only four prime ministers until Christmas. I thought that was, a, that was a clever way of saying that the time is short. That is the world we live in, isn't it? Uh, kings and kingdoms come and go. And as we continue looking through the Gospel of Mark, we are once again reminded of the kingly authority of Jesus. Now, this is kind of a, a theme that, that just is a thread throughout the entire 16 chapters of Mark that Jesus, the servant king, has all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, prime ministers, kings, governments, fads, fame, fortune, it all comes and goes. But Jesus, the servant king, we see his authority is eternal. So I want to invite you to turn with me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Mark, chapter 5, as we continue... Uh, to look at Jesus, uh, the servant Savior, uh, but the authority of the King. And so we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week. And so uh, if you were with us last week, just a reminder that, that Jesus in his authority gives us peace, that Jesus in authority gives us power, we saw, and that Jesus in his authority, we saw a proclamation that we are called to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now, um, the context, if you'll remember, was uh, Jesus had gotten into a boat, and while on the boat, while on a journey, the Bible says that a massive storm, a tempest, comes. They think the boat's sinking. Jesus uh, speaks to the wind and waves. There's peace. Then you remember they get to the other side. They get out of the boat, and they're confronted with a man who's possessed by many demons, Jesus heals him, and now Jesus is back in the boat going back to the other side. So there's this kind of back and forth in the boat, all right? So remember where we left off in verse, uh, look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, right? Man comes, wants to go with him. Jesus says, no, go and proclaim the gospel. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. We're back in the boat with Jesus and the disciples. Now, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. 
At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Do not be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kuam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around, and she was 12 years old. At at this, they were completely astonished. And Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true that these things really happened. And Jesus, we thank you that you have given us your account and that by your spirit and in your word, Jesus, we can be transformed and changed as you are at work in us and through us. And so, Jesus, we humbly ask that you would open our minds and just give us understanding by your spirit of truth that we could understand your word. And Jesus, as always, we humbly ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would be changed and transformed by your word. Speak to us now, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, again, we see some amazing uh, encounters Uh, with men and women who encounter the authority of Jesus. And this word authority comes up throughout the book of Mark uh, in his teaching and his miracles. And just as a reminder, again, we we saw this last time, but just as a reminder, this Greek word uh, authority, um, exousia, in in Greek it, it means a delegated power, influence, and right the power of one whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. 
And so uh, a couple of things there the Greek reminds us of that, first of all, uh, the power of Jesus has been delegated to him. He does not operate on his own accord or by his own authority, but he operates under the authority of the Father. And, and Jesus will, will continually point people to the Father, and he'll say, I and the Father are one, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we see in, in the Trinity that, that the, the Son operates under the authority of the Father, and then we see in the book of Acts that the Spirit then operates under the authority of the Son. And so we see this beautiful picture. Uh, it's very interesting, by the way, if you remember early on in Jesus' ministry, he has a centurion who comes to him and says that my best servant uh, is, is, is sick unto death. Will you come and heal him? And then he says something very interesting. The centurion says, I know you can do it because like you, I too am a man under authority. Very interesting there that he recognizes not just Jesus' authority, but that Jesus is under authority. And there's something beautiful about that when you see this servant king who is submissive to the authority of his heavenly father. So it's delegated power influence. And then it is a power, one of whose will and commands must be submitted to by others. So when Jesus spoke to the demons, we saw last time they had no choice. They wanted to bargain over where they might end up, where they might go, but they had to listen to the commands of Jesus. Uh, We see that when he speaks, people must listen. Uh, I'm coming to, uh, I've read the New Testament this year, and so I'm kind of ending up my New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, and uh, just going really slowly through it. And I was once again just struck in the Gospel of John when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember, Judas betrays him, the soldiers come to arrest him, and the soldiers say, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am I am. It's a glimpse into back to Moses in the burning bush, the name of God. And Jesus says, I am. And the Bible says that the soldiers fall to the ground as dead men. It's always struck me that that means Jesus had to stand there and wait for them to get up so they could arrest him. That amazing. That amazing. Just that little glimpse of the authority of Jesus. And it literally knocked the soldiers to the ground. And that's our Savior, amen? That, that's our Jesus. And so let's, let's take a few moments and let's look at, again, the authority of Jesus in action. Uh, a couple of simple things. Number one, we see this. As the servant king, Jesus has authority over disease. As the servant king, Jesus has authority over disease. Um, uh, we see in verses 27 through 29, this, this woman, this desperate woman, and, and don't miss uh, the desperation of her situation. It says for 12 years, right? For 12 years, she has had an issue of blood. For 12 years. Can you imagine? For 12 years. Now, uh, we, we don't know exactly the issue, but uh, it seems that particularly in the other Gospels, the Greek would indicate that it had something to do with menstrual uh, bleeding, um, and, and, and think about this. It, it, it's, it's a woman who's been bleeding on her menstrual cycle nonstop for 12 years. I, I, I can't fathom. And, and here's the thing. Not just the, 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 the just practical matters of life, like how do you even deal with that uh, in that time, frame, in that time of, of, of you know, culture and history, 
but but also that meant that according to the Jewish law, she was ceremonially unclean, which means that for 12 years she, she couldn't go into the temple and worship because she was unclean. It, it, it meant that uh, if, if she was married, she, she uh, couldn't be intimate with, with her husband for 12 years. It meant that if anyone approached her, she had to declare herself unclean just like a leper. So think about this. This is, this is kind of what we saw last week with the demon-possessed man who the other Gospels, as you put them together, tells us was, was naked and, and was cutting himself and it had been there for, for years. And that's someone's son. And here, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's friend. And this woman for 12 years has not been able to attend church. This woman for 12 years has not been able to just go and be with others in public because she is unclean. Can you even begin to imagine her desperation? And besides all of that, she's been to all of the best doctors, all of the best medical professions, and they have taken all of her money. Now, there's no indication whether that was done maliciously or not. We don't know. But either way, we know this, that the Bible says here that she's worse off for it. She's worse off for it. And so she now has no money. She spent all her money. And, and not only that, but she's no better off. Can you imagine again her desperation? And so we see in verses 27 through 29, when, uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Oh, what happy day. Amen? What a happy day. This woman in her desperation knew, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just get to Jesus, and not, not just if I can just get and have a conversation with him, or if, if he can just you know, lay hands on me, or if he can just do this, that, or the other. Her, her desperation and her faith are so strong that she says, if I can just, the, the, the King James says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch the bit of his shirt that's hanging out the back, if I can just grab a piece of cloth, I know he can heal me. And as I read that this week, I thought, how often am I desperate for Jesus? I mean, how often in my everyday life do I have that desperation? Jesus, I need you, and without you, I have nothing. I am worse off with everything the world offers. I am desperate for you, Jesus. And I would love to say that I'm that way every single day. But unfortunately, I would confess to you, church, I'm not. I'm not. How desperate are we for Jesus? She knew if I can just get to the Savior, to the servant king. And in her desperation, she was healed. And don't you love that, that Jesus, uh, wanting to find out who touched him, him knowing that something had happened, that some spiritual, supernatural transaction had taken place. He says, who touched me? He feels somehow the, the power from him. And, and he finds her, and look at verse 34, because it is beautiful. And he said to her, daughter, isn't that lovely? He doesn't say woman. He doesn't say ma'am. He doesn't say miss. His daughter. Isn't that beautiful? This is the king, right? He says, daughter, 
your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Can you imagine? And the word peace here is shalom. Go with the blessings of God. You're set free. Jesus has all authority over disease. Amen? He, he doesn't even have to speak the word and sickness must flee. Uh, we see uh, a second um, element of the authority of Jesus here. And it's this, that as the servant king, Jesus has authority over disease. But secondly, we see that as the servant king, Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority over death. Uh, remember that the, the, the incident with the woman is, is a bit of a footnote to, to the, the main story, right? She's a deviation from the main story. And the main story is a leader in the synagogue, right? To verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly. Here we are again, desperate right? Desperation. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So they're on the way to Jairus's house when this incident happens with this woman. So let let me just say quickly there, I was thinking this, this week as I prepared this, how often do I miss what God is doing because I'm thinking about what God is going to do? Let me say that again. How often do I miss what God is doing because I'm focused on what God is going to do? Another way I might say it is this. When when God divinely places people into my day, into my schedule that I did not plan on, do I see them as an opportunity or as a disruption? Let me say that again. When, When I have my day planned and someone crashes my schedule, yeah, Someone, someone calls me, someone knocks on my door, someone turns up, and I'm in the middle of doing what I know needs to be or uh, what should be done. Do I see people as a disruption or as an opportunity? Because remember, Jesus is on the way to heal a little girl when this incident happens with the woman. And Jesus could have very easily said, you know what, don't worry about finding her. We need to get to the house because that's what we're about doing today, Right? But Jesus never, ever views people as an interruption, but always views them as an opportunity. Jesus never views people as an interruption, but always views them as an opportunity, right? And so in God's sovereignty, he interrupts Jesus' schedule, and Jesus seizes the opportunity, and a woman's life has changed forever. Now, let's get back on the road, and we're heading to uh, to the house to be with Jairus' daughter. But as we know, what happens? Well, uh, they've stopped to have this um, interaction with the sick woman. And then look at verse 35, right? And so verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some, keep, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Right? It's too late, Jesus. You got sidetracked with the woman, and as a result, uh, the, the child is dead. Does this phase Jesus at all? Yeah, the answer is no, right? Doesn't phase Jesus at all because he knows that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so death is, is nothing to Jesus, right? And so uh, Jesus says, look at verse 36. 
uh, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, meaning Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Can you imagine? Just found out his daughter is dead, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just, just hold on, because I'm going to do something. And so uh, look at what happens then, uh, verses 35 through 43. It says this, And so he, meaning Jesus, took her, the little girl, by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. They were completely astonished. It's interesting because Jesus says, don't worry, she's, she's just asleep, right? He's, he's used this before. Uh, he says in verse 39, he went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. Oh, it means this, that for Jesus, raising someone from the dead is no harder than me raising someone from a nap. Let me say that again. For Jesus... Raising someone from the dead is no harder than me raising someone from a nap. If you have children and they're still in that age when they maybe take naps and you have to go in and wake them up and you do that and it's not hard. You, however you do that in your home, maybe it's with cuddles or a, a gent, gentle whisper, whatever it is, but you just easily arouse them back into a state of being awake. Jesus is no harder for him to raise the dead. And, and this is... Um, probably one of my favorite pictures of Jesus in all of the Gospels. And it's because of this phrase, Talitha kuum. And in the Greek, uh, Talitha, it would have been Aramaic, it, it literally means little lamb. I just love that. I love that the king of the universe kneels over and says, little lamb, wake up. Little lamb, wake up. Little lamb, isn't that precious? Jesus says, little lamb, wake up. The king is here. Okay. And immediately, Mark says, he gets out of bed. Jesus, the king, no harder for him than waking someone from sleep. Little lamb, get up. And immediately the girl stood up, began to walk around, and it, they were completely astonished. That's what we call in English an understatement. Amen? They were completely astonished. We see Jesus has authority over death. And, and so we, we see a third way that Jesus uses authority, but I want to maybe hit a quick pause. And I, I just want to just ask a real-life question that I have, maybe you have, I don't know, um, when I come to these truths that Jesus has authority over disease and over death, and then I wonder, well, Jesus, then why do so many people who love you and follow you die of cancer? Why do so many people who love you and follow you suffer? Like, Jesus, if you have this authority, then I don't quite understand why we don't see this in the everyday of life, right? Um. I mean, I, I can look around and just visually see that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of us in this room that suffer from the same condition. Anybody guess what it is? Eyesight. 
There were 12 of us who were wearing glasses. It means our eyes are broke. I would love not to wear glasses. By the way, you all look spectacular. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, now you look even better. Great. Thank you, Paul, for the mercy laugh. Right? I, I would love just to be like, Jesus, like, I don't want to wear glasses anymore. Fit, do that. And, and I, I, he can. Like, he can. I believe he can. I believe that. So l- let me be crystal clear about something. God heals people. Amen, church? God heals people. He has the power and he has the authority. We, we see that clearly in Scripture. But we also see that we now live in this time when that is the exception and not the rule. That is the exception and not the rule. And so how do we kind of think through that with one another? And we also see this in Scripture. And so I just want to take a real quick diversion and just look at it, it, it Paul very quickly and just see maybe some things that could just speak truth and encouragement to us. Um, uh, it, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering at all. When you look at his spiritual resume, I mean, he's beaten many times and left for dead. He's stoned. He's shipwrecked. He spends nights at sea. He's whipped to within an inch of his life. All the things that these things happen. And then it seems also that there's some chronic condition in Paul's life that is a continual source of suffering. And, uh, and Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The context is Paul is sharing about a vision that he has received that somehow God supernaturally has taken Paul uh, to, he says, the kind of the third level of heaven. Paul has seen and heard the things of heaven. And he says, these are things that are inexpressible. By the way, it's one reason I've never buy these books about people who've been to heaven because Paul said, I went and I can't even express to you. Like, there are no words. And so I imagine if Paul can't express it, I'm not sure if someone who's selling books making millions can. And so Paul, uh, he says, I've, I've seen Jesus in heaven. And then this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 12. He says, now, therefore, I, I, I went to heaven. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, three times I pleaded with the Lord. There's that word, for desperation. I desperately reached out to the Lord and said, please take it away from me. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, Paul does not tell us what his thorn in the flesh was. And and so there have been many scholars who speculate. Uh, Some say it was spiritual and it was a result particularly of of those who are accusing him of not being a true apostle. We see that at the church at Corinth. Others say that it was physical. Most evidence would suggest maybe Paul had, oddly enough, something wrong with his eyes because Paul goes on in his letters and begins to say, I'm writing to you in big letters. We know Tychicus was his amanuensis. That's a fancy word for his secretary. So later on, it seems that people start writing Paul's letters for him And so I would be of that camp. I think there is a lot of biblical evidence to suggest that Paul had some type of, it could be macular degeneration or something happened with his eyes that he could no longer um, write. Um, And we see this as as he goes on in his life. Whatever it was, this this is what we learn from it, all right? 
and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna run through these really quickly. Um, and these are just four things we learn from Paul in suffering. Uh, first of all, we see that God uses suffering in my life to teach me humility. God uses suffering in my life to teach me humility. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to click back and forth. I'll, we'll go back so you can finish writing those. Look what he says. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. I mean, can you imagine being personally escorted through heaven by God while you're still alive? Like, I don't know about you, but I would probably get a T-shirt made that said that, right? Like, I've been to heaven, you haven't. Or, like, I would create a website, like kennysbeentoheaven.com or whatever it might be, right? And so Paul confesses, like, I'm a bit tempted. Now, remember, if, if you remember... Corinthians, he has these uh, false teachers who are accusing him of not really being an apostle. And so what better way to prove that he is but just to roll up and say, yep, so how many of you have been to heaven this week? I have. So that makes me an apostle, makes you not an apostle, right? Paul doesn't do that. He says, in order to teach me humility, man, God's placed something in his life and he's pleaded with the Lord three times, and God says, I'm leaving it. And so, can I just say, sometimes God allows us to suffer to teach us humility. Now, I would dare never, ever, ever interpret that for someone else's suffering. I can only interpret that for mine. Does that make sense? Like, I would never tell another person, well, I think God's teaching you humility. Like, that's, that's not my place, but I know in my own life there have been times where I'm like, yeah, like maybe the Lord's just trying to teach me humility through this time of suffering. We also see Paul says that God uses suffering in my life to draw me closer to him, to draw me closer to him. Remember what he says. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And then he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. I didn't simply ask. I pleaded three times. Now, it could have been more than three times. Three represents perfection. Maybe, maybe it was a lot more than three, and he's just, you know, kind of the 70 times seven of forgiveness. It doesn't literally mean 490 times. Like, the idea is here, like, I have continually pleaded with God, take this from me, and God has said no. But here's what happens in the pleading. It draws us closer to Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our blessing and shouts in our pain. God whispers in our blessing and shouts in our pain. There's something about pain and suffering that draws us closer to our Lord. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You, you lay a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? Like the, the valley of the shadow of death, uh, not a place I would want to Airbnb, Amen. Right? Not, not a holiday destination. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I'm going to divert your life around the valley. He doesn't say, I'm going to pick you up and carry you over the valley. He says, I'm going to walk with you through the valley. Amen? Jesus doesn't say, you'll never have storms. He says, you'll have storms, but I'll be in the boat with you. Jesus says, You'll walk through dark valleys, but never forget, I walk with you. My rod and my staff, they will comfort you. Aren't you glad we have a Savior who walks with us in the midst of darkness? Amen. 
And, and so uh, he draws us closer to himself in suffering. But then third, Paul would tell us that God uses suffering in my life so I can experience his grace, right? And so what is, what is God's response to Paul? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But the Lord said to me, my what? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. In suffering, we experience the grace of God. Grace is when we, uh, when we receive that which we justly do not deserve, right? When we receive from God what we justly do not deserve. Well, the picture of that would be heaven. None of us deserve heaven, but by God's grace, we get what we don't deserve, right? Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve, right? Hell's the picture of that, like we all deserve hell, but because of God's mercy, we don't get what we deserve if we love and follow Jesus, right? But we, we experience his grace. And then lastly, Paul says that God uses suffering in my life so I can experience his strength. God uses suffering in my life so I can experience his strength. And we would probably be familiar with this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Many of us maybe would know the translation that would say, when I am weak, he is strong. All right. Here's the part I don't like about that. That means to experience God's strength, I have to experience my weakness. Are you with me? I'll be honest with you. Most days, my flesh my flesh resists that. I, I, Lord, I, I don't want to be sick. Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to wear glasses. Lord, I, I, I don't want my niece to, to just, just have one leg and no fingers. Lord, I, 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 I don't want us to struggle financially. Lord, I don't want these things. The Lord says, do you want my grace? Do you want my strength? Do you want to experience me in the most intimate of ways? Then let me lay a table for us in the midst of these dark things, that you might know my grace and strength. Amen? His strength is made perfect in weakness. Do I believe God heals people? I believe with all my heart he does. I was speaking uh, at a conference not long ago. Someone came up to me after I spoke. I was the, the guest speaker. It was quite a large crowd. And afterwards, a gentleman came up to me in a wheelchair and he came up in the wheelchair and he said, do you have a few moments? Yes. And I was anticipating he was going to ask me something about my message. I said, yeah, what can I help you with? And he said, could you do something for me? I said, yeah, yeah sure, what is it? He said, would you lay hands on me and pray and ask God to heal me that I could get up and walk away from this wheelchair? And I did on my knees I began to cry and I put my hands on his knees and I said Jesus you have all authority in heaven and earth and Jesus would you heal my brother please God and he was crying and I was crying he's been in a wheelchair for 30 years and I said Lord would you please Lord would you please heal my brother that he could get up and walk and we cried and we said amen didn't get up and walk. I 
just cried the whole way home, and I remember getting home and telling Christy about it and crying more. I was like, I believe Jesus can do that. God, give me the grace to always believe you can do that. But God, also give me the faith to believe that when you don't do those things, that you are still good. That you are still good. And that your grace is enough for that brother. And that your strength will be made perfect in his weakness. And can I just be honest? That probably is harder for me to believe than it is to believe get up and work. But God is good. Amen? He is good. Someone asked me recently, it was an unbeliever I was sharing the gospel with, and they said, how do I know God loves me? The answer is simple. If you ever doubt God's love, look no further than the cross. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But our God's love is fixed for us on the cross. I've often envisioned the sign over the cross that said, King of the Jews. I've often just in my own mind imagined after the resurrection, the sign was changed to Jesus loves the world. You ever doubt God loves you? It's not about my glasses. It's not about my sickness. It's not about my bank account. God's love is fixed on the fact that Jesus died for me. And the Bible says, greater love has no man than he lays down his life for another. Amen? And so I I, I just, it's the real tension that we live in right now, this side of heaven. I think we, we ask God for healing. We trust God for healing. But we also know that, that when God chooses to keep us in, in certain states, when, when our thorn in the flesh is not removed, let's remember these things, that God always has a purpose. Romans eight twenty eight, and he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you've ever heard or seen Joni Erickson Tata, at the age of 18, she dove into what she thought was a, a deep pond. It was very shallow. She went head first became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. She's now in her 60s. I was on her website the other day, and just again watching her testimony, and she says, I would not change a thing for the world. She said, but that being said, she said, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is ask Jesus to send my wheelchair straight to hell. I thought I liked that. I like that. He has the authority, and he is good, and we rest in that. Last thing. And it's this, as a servant king, Jesus has authority over disease, over death. Let's don't miss this. He has authority over his disciples. He has authority over you and me. Those of us who have given our lives to Jesus to follow him, uh, he is our authority. Uh, There's a wonderful uh, apologist who I would highly recommend by the name of Frank Turek has a ministry called Cross-Examined Ministries. And he spends a lot of time going to university campuses in America and just sharing the gospel, uh, doing large events and debates. He is brilliant. We uh, had him, the church hub pastor in America, we had him come and do a three-day apologetics conference. He is spectacular. I'd highly recommend him. Um, but but he, I saw him interviewed recently, and he said, um, someone asked, what is the number one reason you see young people give for not wanting to follow Jesus. Like he goes and presents the evidence, and, and often young people will agree with the evidence, but won't follow Jesus. 
And the question that he was asked is, what is the number one reason that university students have said, I don't want to follow Jesus? Anybody want to take a guess? Suffering. All right. What else? Want to do my own thing? Yep. Christians. All right. I'll give you a hint. George's George's warm. They want to do their own thing, and this is fascinating. In particular, there's one thing they want to do, and they don't want to be told not to. Sex outside of marriage. That's exactly right. He said, in America, and he speaks to literally tens of thousands, he said, the number one reason students come up to me, he said, I've had students come up and say, like, you have convinced me, like, I, yes, this is real, but does this mean that I have to follow God's standards as it relates to sex? And he says, yes, and they unequivocally say, I'm not interested. It brings us to this point that he has authority, not simply, it's great, I get excited about death and disease and teaching and He has authority over me. He has authority over you, which means we do what he says to do and we don't do what he says not to do, right? And so we don't want to miss that. Um, And so we see there in in, uh, chapter 6, the first few verses, that that he goes into his hometown. He's he's not just underappreciated. He's basically rejected uh, by those in his hometown. Um, And then... Uh, he, he tells us in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, all these things. But then I'm, I'm just going to nick a wee bit of verse 7. I know we're going to look at it last week. It's just simply this. Just get to verse 7. Then Jesus went around. He leaves his town, right? And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him, and he began to send them out two by two. And it's simply this. It's simply Jesus now showing the authority over his disciples, Right? And so uh, when we come to follow Jesus, we follow him as Savior and we follow him as Lord, right? He is Lord. He is King. I'd imagine whatever King Charles asked for and, uh, and wherever he's at this morning, he probably gets it. Is that fair to say? Probably, probably fair to say. And Jesus is King. And as his disciples, he has authority over us And we should not find that constraining at all, but we should find that absolutely liberating. Because you know what it means? It means that our problems are his problems, that our our well-being is his concern. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep, and he will protect those and feed those he cares for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus... These are, these are hard, heavy things. And Jesus, we would confess, at least I would, that, man, I struggle with some of this, Lord. Just kind of knowing you have the authority to do certain things and then not always seeing you do them. And Lord, would we be reminded that that in no way, in no way, impacts your goodness? You are good, and Lord, we just would pray that you would give us faith to know that and to believe that, and even in the midst of times of suffering, times of grief, times of hardship, Lord, may we rest in the truth that you are good. And Lord, as we 
maybe even in our own families, in our own uh, circles of life, as we grieve for those who have died this year, as we, as we hurt with those who suffer uh, physically and emotionally and with mental health issues, all these things, Lord, would we look to the cross and would we look to the cross and be reminded that you love us, Jesus, you gave your life for us, your plans are perfect, and, and Lord, we just know by faith that you are always working for your glory and for our good. And Lord, we pray that you might fill us with faith, with peace, and with strength, that you and you alone have the authority to give. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.